The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. And we're live. It's time. It is yeah. Friday, April 1st. That's April Fool's Day to you. 2022, 5.02 p.m. Everything outrageous <coughs> that I say on this show is going to be true, starting with the fact that there was a, a, a tornado in Washington last night, um, and I warned Kate about it. Um, that's not an April Fool's joke. It really happened. It is 5.02 p.m. Kate is on a train. Uh, that's like the name of a horror movie. Kate on a train. Um, uh, <laughs> um, it's starring Wesley Snipes. Um, and um, and there's uh, Scott Shapiro is trying to make arrangements to be on yeah, a train. That's and, true. And I have um, and I am sitting here coughing with COVID. So Kate is going to be in and out of the um, of the. Uh, it's nacho cheese night. It's nacho cheese night. Um, <laughs> And uh, and so because I have a feeling Kate is going to be blipping in and out and Scott is uh, going to go catch a train at some point because we actually pulled him off of a train yeah. in order to do this. Uh, I've invited some other people to cheese out with us. Oh, um, good. Uh, and uh, um, so, you know, they may show up at some point, just pop up on the screen. So, Scott, uh, please, in the meantime, tell us about your train schedule. So, <laughs> you'll never believe it. I was going to get the 515, which is it, which is an express. And then I got, the, I got a text and then I can't take the express. So now I have to take the local. <laughs> now, can, can I, can I inquire where you're going? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and it, it's actually funny because I'm going down to New York. Ah, and so Kate is also going to New York. Oh my God, what are the odds? Right. Um, wow. So, so this is um, this is almost like train night. It is almost. I, Paula, you are a green rectangle, which means we cannot tell whether you're on a train I'm, or about to get on a train. I am doing neither. I'm trying to fix the green rectangle. Um, they don't teach you tech in law schools. Could you like get rid of, does this, it, does this mean you're really bad at tech, Paula? I know this from fielding multiple texts from you, but also I know that typically the green rectangle means you're wearing glasses. Yes. So I would, so I would encourage you to keep the glasses on to try to solve the tech problem. That's all I have so to say. It was initially for the glasses, but then I moved my desk um, so that I would like be closer to the window so that I could get better lighting because I have one lamp in like my entire home, and then I realized that I can't hear Ben. Um, 
I mean, I, 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 that is also an addressable problem. Only have one lamp. I am, by the way, drinking a, a straight wa a, a rye whiskey called Rendition, which uh, <laughs> I, is handmade by a, a high school friend of my wife's, um, but is actually called Rendition, um, <laughs> which just gives me no end of amusement. Yeah, gosh, yeah. Right, yeah. I was, um, I, I, since I was running for the train, um, I was, um, uh, I, I didn't have a drink, but I was drinking special military operation, um, which is like a really powerful. Yeah, it's vodka. an important cocktail. Wait, war? Yeah. Wait, is it really? Yeah. Wait, what? Oh, it's not. Okay. I'm drinking. I was, just, I was, he was making a rendition joke. Yeah, I was making a rendition joke. Um, but if then, I, you know, if I had Paul, a, a, a liquor I company, it would be called Glomar. Okay, so Paula, is that one lamp that you have a green lamp? <laughs> no, what okay. happens is when I change my camera settings, it just automatically makes it this green screen. I don't know why. I think this is just like what my computer does. I Well, I can I just say, there's no question that that is what your computer is doing. Um, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Because it's definitely happening. <laughs> You're not imagining it, okay? Um, the second thing is, um, uh, does your did, is there a switch like a drop down menu thing that says green screen? No, this is the only option. It's just a green screen. I am not doing I, anything. I, There's no purple screen. I, and I want to just say one thing, and, I, and really, it is not to make you feel bad or anything like that. But the green is so intense that it's hurting my retina. Like, <laughs> I, I, like, like my my rods and cones are like. Can, totally can I ask, Ev, um, who has just shown up? Uh, does it give you a certain Schadenfreude to 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 be uh, sitting there? Uh, 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 while we are making fun of somebody else about about her background and and um, and I'm you just get to sit it. there and smirk. Yeah, great. It's not so it's not so fun, Paula. Huh? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Is it really accidental? Is it really like uh, involuntary that you're a green rectangle? No, so I, I put it like this because I um, had a meeting with a professor with my uh, screen, like my, my new setup, which was next to the window because I only have one lamp and you could see nothing because, <laughs> and so I was just this luminescent <laughs> person ghost in my Zoom meeting. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, I so, I so say, it's less embarrassing to be a green desk set up, but I just haven't done it yet. But I did this week, but I'm trying to like fix the green screen now. Okay, so I did. I had in my fur in my life this week with COVID with my uh law students my first ever true Zoom faux pas. And no, it did not involve masturbation. Um, uh, it was not, uh, um, no, because I, I, I know when I said, you know, a Zoom faux pas, 
with law students, I, <laughs> Kate's like <laughs> more Doritos. Serious stress eating. But all right. So <laughs> this was like a total self-own. Um, I shared my screen to share something. And I shared, instead of the right screen, I shared the wrong screen, which contained my Google Docs. So like uh, everything, all the recent Google Docs that I had, and nobody in the class said anything Ooh. for like five minutes. And so Ooh. they're all like reading my, you know, uh, you know, the titles of my, which fortunately are all, you know, pretty uh, uh, mild, you know, they're things like, but like my Brookings work plan and um, and other stuff. But I, I, you know, just, and then I, at one point I joked with them, I suppose I should turn this off so that you don't all keep reading about my Brookings self-assessment and work plan. Um, and <laughs> you know, they all just sort of smirked at me. So I just want to say, um, uh, you know, if you're a law student, um, or, uh, you know, at, or an undergraduate and, and your professor like puts up what the, uh, what the, the, the big kids call PII, which is personally identifying information. You should say something, even if it's not a HIPAA violation, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, it was terrible. Uh, I, it was a privacy cell phone. Yeah. I, that, that's about, can, can, can I just say one thing? I forgot I have these, which are white cheddar individual popcorn. So I'm going. It, this is cheese night, cheese snack night. Where, I'm, I'm sorry, but can I just say uh, nothing like that has ever happened to me. Um, I have never had Google Docs ever opened on my computer ever. I, I mean, it was really just the Google Docs Vaughn index as as. As, uh -huh. You know, because it's just the list of available material. But, um, you know, there was a submission from one Scott Shapiro and Ona Hathaway on it, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, which, you know, like early before it became. I think you have a Cambridge. Kind of I think you have a Cambridge Analytica suit, Scott. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just telling you, it was uh, it was, you know, my my, my personal life is 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 so, you know, it's so private that, um, you know, I just don't know if my, my, the shame will be able to hold it. Yeah, I, can I say something? And I, and I don't mean to bring the room down because we're all having fun on cheese snack night. Um, uh, but, you know, Ben, when I send you my documents, I expect that they're gonna be kept safe. Um, and they're really, <laughs> It yeah, really, it's terrible. It really feels, I mean, it's one thing. I mean, I really may have to reconsider my becoming a contributing editor because I've yet to sign the contract. That's true that I, you've yet to sign the contract. It, <laughs> might, it might be that, you know, this is the kind of late stage deal breaker that has foiled many a oh, informal yeah. arrangement between also, where do you, Ben, this was at your Harvard class and you're betraying a Yale law professor in this way? 
So I'm just like pointing <laughs> out that there's that natural rivalry that you're uh, like completely uh, exploiting. There was even, you know, a member of the Greek chorus whose privacy was compromised in this uh, fashion. Uh, I don't know if Auntie Ruakonin is is with us today, but he's written. Uh, uh, what are you doing, Kate? <laughs> but he's 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 written a very interesting piece about the history of Finlandization, and um, and you know that there is a piece called Finlandization by Auntie Ruakonin is now knowable too. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was a serious data breach uh, that <laughs> went on here. And, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Harvard Law School has some liability and some exposure here. And I have some exposures. I'm very, you know, it was it was a shameful episode. I, I have to, I have to say, I mean, I'm eating popcorn, like I'm having fun enjoying this, but inside I'm crying. Yeah, you want to hear? Uh, you you want to hear my truly? Wait, most... hold on. Look at this Amtrak cheese plate. Oh I my have... God! Ah. I have, I have baby bells, and crackers, and more saltine crackers, and some cheddar what? cheese, and more crackers, and more baby bell. And then a cheddar cheese again. I just did a circle. It's like, I know it's nasty, Lisa. Like, I know the baby bell is nasty. I don't. Can I it. share like a 30 second baby bell story that is not, in fact, an April Fool's joke? Yeah, no, no. We're, we're not doing April Fool's jokes. And then, oh, I'll, no. then, then, I'll tell you, then I'll tell you the story of my worst ever privacy cell phone, uh, which does involve my mother. And, um, and I, I think we should all tell the stories of our worst ever privacy cell phones. But first, let's hear. Um, um, I just want to really quickly to answer John Hawkinson's question. This cost me $38. Oh my. Is that real? <laughs> that's, that's the most expensive bad cheese in the world. <laughs> wow. OK, it's Baby Bell story. I, I mean, you're lucky that that comes out of the little fun budget. <laughs> Which is really just the Yale Law School budget. <laughs> um, I, in fact, when I was little, loved Baby Bell cheese, but the packaging is quite different than other cheese, given it's, you know, individual and it has that cool wax on it. And when I was little, I thought that that was kind of like a rind or something, like it was a part of the cheese. And <laughs> Wow. <laughs> no. I can see Scott's face because I don't know. If no, he knows I totally where know where you're going. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, 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 just, I just want to hear you say it. That's a poll, and it's happening right now. <laughs> Give me a second. Um, Paula, um, you know, it looks like one of those silly putties, uh, you know, with the egg. You know the great red egg. The, 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 you're 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 dislodging it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
it's an easy mistake to make. I just want to say. Wait, so you ate it? To make once. Yes. How many? How many times subsequent to the first time that you ate a bowl of <laughs> did you do it again? Yeah. I think this was like for like a couple of years or something. How did you realize <laughs> that we were not edible? Yeah. Like what? Ha what happened when you had to go to the emergency room each time? <laughs> I think one time, like I was peeling it off, and like I noticed the paper that was attached to it, and I was like, "I don't think that's edible." <laughs> All right, so okay. I want to, I want to uh, go back, go back to privacy cell phones here. Can we just time? really quickly say that this is a close second to the time Alan came on and said that he thought that all islands floated until he like 35 years old. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> yeah, he learned only as an adult that islands didn't float. Um, uh, <laughs> which by the way, I love about Alan that he's willing to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a funny story about sextortion. Katie, uh, we had a conversation about sextortion the other day. It was exceedingly not funny. This wow. is the only funny story ever about sextortion. Um, just as uh, I can tell you the only non-offensive ethnic joke in the world, um, this is the only funny story about sextortion you will ever here. Um, so you know what the thing is before you go, I gotta jump off because I gotta get catch the train. I'm, bye, okay. Scott. Okay, bye bye everyone. It was really it was really fun for me. I have no idea whether this was objectively <laughs> fun. But you were not allowed to have fun anymore. So if it wasn't it was that's fun. right, who cares? Right, exactly. Okay, bye bye. Good bye. weekend. Okay, so I was just starting my research on sextortion and I found about 20 different cases of sextortion and each of them i downloaded the pdf of the indictment and you know rather than having some long complicated docket number identifying the pdf i just wrote sextortion one dot pdf sextortion two dot pdf sextortion three dot pdf sextortion four so i had like 30 25 30 sextortion documents each labeled sextortion and then a number and um I had my computer on uh, the dining room table and my mother was uh, uh, at my house and we were talking about something completely different. And she, uh, I forget what we were talking, it may have been like taxes or something. And I said, oh, let me look at my computer. And I opened it up and the screen pops up and it's like sextortion one, <laughs> sextortion two, sextortion three. And my mother, um, you know, did what of course, the only appropriate thing to do under those circumstances when you've when your when your son your adult son has opened a pornography laden computer in front of her in front of you which is just to pretend that you haven't seen it and that there's uh, that it's the most normal thing in the world for a bunch of documents labeled sextortion 26 sextortion you know to to um um uh and of course, if you're a uh, uh, 
the son of such a person doing this, you nonetheless feel the need to explain that actually, and by the way, I was like, you know, 48 at the time. This was like, you know, you, but you never quite lose the 14 year old boy instinct to explain that no, the legal documents that you're looking at, that your mother thinks are the porn that you're looking at are not in fact porn. They're actually in federal indictments. And, and so you end up in this, uh, this very, uh, you know, careful explanation. Did she know that they weren't federal indictments of you? Like, no, no, she knew, I, I mean, I, I'm sure all she saw was a list of documents, a list of files. They weren't open. Um, so it's like, it's like a folder opens and it's like a list of documents, sextortion one, you know, sextortion two, girls, 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 you know. Um, but, you know, it reads very differently to the Brookings scholar who's trying to collect documents on sextortion than it does to the the um, the woman whose son opens a file and there's a whole bunch of sex documents in it. Anyway, that is my most egregious privacy cell phone. Um, and it did not affect my relationship with my mother at all. Um, and such, uh, but you know, that's life. So Ev, what's your most egregious privacy cell phone? I don't think it is a privacy cell phone, but it's a story that is quite similar to yours actually. Um, I, a few years ago, I had a computer from, for work. Uh, so it was not mine, uh, but uh, so I, I, I was using it as if it was mine. Um, and I clicked on the, on the wrong place at some point, like, like a noob, like a weird link. And at some point I, my, I started receiving pop-ups from, um, porn site, porn website. And I was just lazy and it was a computer for work. So I didn't have the admin password and stuff. So I could not deal with the issue by myself i had to go um to like the, the the it department and i was lazy and i didn't do it for a while i was just like closing the tabs every time they happened to pop up uh, until the day where i was uh, sharing my screen for doing a presentation in front of my boss and like many people and then lesbian porn started to pop up and i was like oh shit <laughs> Uh, and I just very diff in a very different fashion from yours. I just didn't say anything and got very shy, uh, like awkward and embarrassed. And right after I get, I I went to the IT department and get this freaking fucking stuff fixed as soon as possible. So yeah, that's kind of my. It's not a privacy issue, but it's a embarrassing we have moments. very different approaches of why so <clears throat> my approach to anything that could embarrass me in such a way that i'm not actually responsible for or doesn't Tweet about some it. truthfulness about like me is to just like own it completely like if that type of, like i would like over explain that type of situation like i would be like let me explain what's going on this really terrible thing and this is exactly what i've been like i would tell the story that you just told 
but to the people that's, who are sitting in the That's room. basically exactly what I did to my, with my mom. I was like, Mom, do you know what sextortion is? You know, <laughs> and here are 25 federal indictments about sextortion popping up on the screen. Well, you know, that was, that was like my approach. There's two things for me. Like, first thing is like, oh, I don't want to say, oh, I'm really lazy and I don't have my shit together. So I try to pretend that I get my shit together. Uh, So first thing I didn't want to admit that it was something that was going on for a while. And second, I thought, of course, if if I start to explain myself, I look like I I will make no sense and I will uh, worsen the situation. So I was just like, Let's pretend nothing happened and let's see if it is possible. And nobody talked about it, never. So uh, they might have questioned my sexuality, sexuality, but other than that, I never heard from that. From that, so. All right, Paula, your best ever or worst ever privacy cell phone. I don't think I have one. I don't think I like accidentally. Come on, everybody like, has something that they've accidentally no. revealed that's mortifying. No, Paula doesn't have enough years of life to have had the opportunity to like, <laughs> like basically have this happen to her. I, I think she's right. I don't think I've had any experiences like that, uh, unfortunately, or else I would have a great oh, story. Oh, well. <laughs> Fortunately, I think. I don't think so. I mean, they're like, like, uh, I know this is even privacy. Like one time I slipped up on a Zoom and I thought that I was muted. And when I was an undergrad and I just like said um, like an expletive, like that's really fucking dumb in response to, <laughs> to something that was said. Um, but other than that, I don't think I've had anything. KK? Um, I actually don't really think, I actually am always very conscious of this and like very scared to share my screen. Be mindful of the gap between the station platforms and the train. I'm in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, so, Trenton makes, uh, the world takes. It's true. Um, but no, I, I think that, so like, I'm trying to think if there's, I mean, I think that like, the worst thing that has ever happened is just that like I had, it was before Apple started kind of like taking all of your screenshots and kind of everything that you download and stacking it as an automatic function in the OS um, on the desktop. And so I had at various points a very cluttered desktop and my desktop would be marginally visible if like I had forgotten my slides, I'd like plug my computer in and just like plug my computer in and present to my computer. And one of like, I think I would just have like panic attacks that it was kind of like, that it was like every document that was on my computer was like in a moment of like, I go through batches of kind of cleaning everything up. But like at one moment there would just be like 30,000 things on my, on my desktop. And like any, I like, I just had no, I had no, like track for like what was even there and so it was just kind of like this total panic all the time that there were people that that i you know that i was on blast and that this was you know in a in a class of 70 90 people and that like or like a lecture or a talk 
um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I had that, that experience once of, um, <clears throat> you know, I was giving a lecture and I was doing a really good job and, but I noticed that everybody was staring at me and then I realized it was because I wasn't wearing any clothes. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, that just, that stuff just happens sometimes. But like, I do actually think that this is like really interesting because I, don't you think that like, <clears throat> so this is also kind of like the tech problems of the show are actually a great example of this like we've normalized tech problems yeah you just have to you just make they were stressful at the beginning but then you just make a cognitive decision <clears throat> that the audience knows we're not uh we don't give a shit about that um and uh and so then you don't get stressed out about it in the same way yeah but, and um, so like i kind of but i think it's the same thing with other stuff anyways go ahead and in, in a in a truly heroic uh um, move just now um uh, 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 Mr. Caraba um, has announced uh, that, and I just want to read uh, the quick, because this is really the spirit that I think we should all be uh, uh, operating in, um, in, in Cheese Night all the time. Uh, Matteo writes, um, I have an incredibly embarrassing adult realization story that happened just three weeks ago. And I think, um, you know, of, of such uh, things, our, our alchemy is made. <clears throat> so, Mateo, the floor is yours. All right. This, yeah, this is the story of, of what might be the dumbest thing I've ever said. Um, so, so to set the stage, it was three weeks ago, and I was having dinner with my girlfriend's parents, and it was the second time I'd ever met them. Uh, and... Over the course of the conversation, it we arrive at the point that my family has chickens at our house in the suburbs. And they want to know all about the chickens because they're city people and are curious about things like that. So her dad says to me, well, how does it work with if the chickens, you know, have offspring? Like how many offspring do the chickens produce? And I said, well, we, of course, we only have hens. But, you know, conceivably, uh, that just depends on how many eggs the, you know, rooster could sit on if we had a rooster. And they sort of looked at me a little bit strange, like, what do you mean? It's about how many eggs the rooster could sit on. I was like, well, you all know this, of course, but the way the chickens reproduce is the hen lays an egg. And then the male chicken comes along and sits on the eggs. And then they're, you know, they get warmed or something, they get fertilized. And then, you know the eggs hatch a few weeks later and then they looked at me saying this so confidently uh like th that's not what happens at all I, I know this is what happens i have chickens and i learned this at westmore park when i was in third grade that's what they told us happened with chickens and then her dad said to me do you think maybe that's just what they told you in third grade because you guys hadn't heard about and then my blood went cold. I was like, oh my God, I bet that might have been what happened. Never once had I questioned since learning this that maybe that's not how chickens reproduce. And, and to make matters worse, and I said this in the moment, I took and passed a semester of ornithology last year. <laughs> I took a test on this subject and I passed with flying colors. Never, never once considering like the chickens were birds 
so this is uh, a truly uh, uh, an act of true patriotism and courage for you to come on and, and confess this. Um, and I, um, I just want to say that uh, uh, this is a model to everybody about how you should engage with Cheese Night. Um, and we're just going to leave Matteo up on the rest on the screen so that he can bask in the glory of this of this moment. Um, oh, by the way, if you're wondering if I held strong enough and insisted we Google it, I, I did. And <laughs> and and you know what? Chickens do in fact have sex with each other. I, I, it, it it's yeah. Yeah, they're they're confusing what? because they lay the eggs anyway. <laughs> Like, and I, I also like, was, I thought yeah. this was going to be, I wanted to say. Whoops, we've lost Kate. So, uh, Ev, what is the dumbest thing the that you, the, the dumbest belief that you carried uh, into adulthood? I know better than and like you. Please. Like, I, was, I actually gave you enough credit that I thought that this is. Some... Yeah, we're going to, we're, we're going to, Kate is blinking in and out. Uh, so we can't understand her. So, um, uh, Ev, what's your what's the dumbest belief that you brought unexamined into adulthood? Good question, actually. So there's an amazing uh, ep uh, episode of uh, This American Life about this that actually has somebody who believes that islands float, which is how I found out that Alan... Uh, because I played it for him years ago, and he's like, oh, yeah, I believe that islands float into adulthood. And there's a woman who believed that unicorns were real, um, but, like, actually, like, thought they might be an endangered species or something. Um, and, but by far, the most common, and this will not apply to you as a non-native English speaker, is kids who believe that the word misled is actually misled, which is a word that believe that means misled, um, because they learned it entirely in writing. So for me, uh, I have one of these that is just something that I, I have no idea how I acquired this belief, but it's 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 just as dumb as like Mateo's. Um, so I um, believed that the word haywire was spelled A-W-R-Y, awry, um, and that all people who were pronouncing awry as awry were these morons who didn't know that it was pronounced haywire. Um, and I have no idea where I acquired this belief, but I think I maintained it like in a kind of belligerent fashion until I was about 35. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it persisted for a long time because, you know, I'd hear somebody on the radio saying this has all gone awry. And I'd be like, don't you fucking know that this is, you know, just, um, you know, haywire. Um, and also another one of these that for me was that I thought the this is really weird because it's like doesn't make sense on its face. But I thought the word pun was an acronym for play on words. But if you actually do pun as a play on words, it says pow, not pun. And 
Um, and so I, but that one, that one I figured out when I was probably like 22 or something. Um, uh, okay, I have two of them. If Eve, if Eve doesn't have hers yet. Go ahead. Okay, so the, the first one is that when I was little, I wanted a belly button ring. Like, I think this is like, cause I did gymnastics or cheer and it was like kind of big. And my mom didn't want me to get a belly button ring. So like she convinced me that like belly button piercings were like damage to your organs, like that you might not be able to breathe <laughs> or that this would like kind of, I don't know, like impact the way that your body functioned. And so for the longest time, I thought that like if you blocked your belly button or like somehow like pierced it, that that like somehow impacted the way that you would function on a day to day basis. Um, I believe that one for a really long time. The second one is something that I realized like a year ago, which is like when I was little, I went over to my friend's house and I was like, where are your parents? And she goes, they're upstairs. And I was like, what are they doing upstairs? And she goes, they're showering. And I was like, wait a minute, together? And she goes, yeah. And like, I had no idea like what was going on. I think I must have been like, in elementary school and i just thought that her parents were super poor and this was how they conserved water which was that they all showered together or like her parents showered together <laughs> elementary school like i think these don't count unless you carry them into adulthood i um, i didn't carry that one into adulthood but it took me until a year ago to remember like the memory and then realize for all these years i like just subconsciously thought that my friend was poor because of that one memory that i didn't, That's excellent. didn't put together um okay so ev have you thought of your the dumbest thing that you knew as fact carried into adulthood and others if you want to join and share these with us i have shared the this american life uh episode my favorite one of which is the woman who thought that the word Xing, as in deer crossing, or, um, you know, uh, was actually a word, and it was zing. Um, and uh, she only learned that it was crossing when she said to somebody as a, you know, 35 year old or something, there should be a zing for ducks here because there were ducks walking across the street and the guy responded to her, it's not a zing, it's a crossing. <laughs> and she had to reevaluate her whole life as a result of this. So um, I think these things are beautiful. They are nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, and you should all, uh, uh, we should all out ourselves uh, for, the, for them. Um, Anybody got one? I really, I, I must be full of uh, illusions still. I, I, I'm probably like a five years old child and waiting to be exposed to the real world because I really can't think of one. Um, well, though I'm like, there's. Is it possible that you have any related to like idioms? I know that a, a common thing, like my mom, uh, her first language wasn't English and she regularly discovers that she's got idioms backwards uh, and like thinks they mean things other than what they are. 
Yeah, well, that's true that I'm I'm really bad with like I don't know if I'm bad or if I like to mix them up, but I all the all the time I mix them up. Uh but no, I I don't see uh any instances of that. Um and especially since in Frank, I'm I'm not sure if I there actually there's one that I could could think of, um, but it, it is in French, and it I don't even know if I can translate it. Um, there's a there's a saying about like pushing an, an old lady in the bushes, um, but I don't know what what it means. Yeah, I don't I still don't know what it means. So, but. Uh... Richard Wattenbarger, what is the dumbest belief, factual belief that you carried with you into adulthood? Oh, wow. I, I don't know about dumb beliefs. Um, I probably have a lot of them, and I still haven't realized that they're dumb beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm just waiting to be, uh, be tripped up on one of them at some point. But I, I do have an embarrassing story that will, uh, that, you know, with all due respect, Matteo, Matteo, it's, it's actually, it's more embarrassing than yours. And <laughs> I, I bring it up here as a, uh, yeah. Does it involve as, showing porn to your mom? <laughs> it does not, fortunately, it does not, does not get that way. I, I bring it up here as a, a means of therapy almost because coming out and telling the world about it, I mean, my wife, my wife knows about it, but no one else does, may actually deter me in the future from doing this, because this has happened more than once. And before the uh, before we all went to Zoom, I was happily teaching in the classroom. And people who, who know me uh, well know that I'm, I'm very absent-minded. And, um, and so one day uh, before class, I, uh, you know, I, I went to the restroom and I, I came back to class and Thought everything was. Um, I thought I I thought that I had closed the fly, and got up in front of the whole class, and I'm there. I am lecturing, and I look down, and and I realize, oh no, how do I get out of this? Because there was no way to get out of that, and and then you know I found a way to get out of it. But the thing is, is that it happened again and again, and I'm always there, like, oh no, is this going to? Uh, is this the end for me? And, uh, is, am I going to be hearing from the dean or something like that? So, and and so now I I hope that coming coming forward coming clean with this that this will deter me so uh, in the future from this uh, absent mindedness. Excellent, Richard. Uh, uh, you're a great American for uh, telling that story because that is all of us. Um, <laughs> Um, and, you know, there, there are, so, uh, you had an issue you wanted to raise. Oh, but it, it, it's serious. Do you want to talk about a serious issue today? Um, I think we can, we can poke at a serious issue. Okay. Well, all right. So, um, so I, I, I'm remembering back to the, to the eighties and nineties when, um, uh, and conservatives back then were talking a lot about, you know, original originalism and you know, textualism as they as they have continued to do since. But the other thing that they were talking about that 
you didn't really hear much about uh, outside of conservatism was common good. And, you know, you would hear this a lot from people like Richard John Newhouse and the people over at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, and so I guess my my question is, um, uh, what was my, my question about it? Uh, uh, let's see. What did I... So my question actually had to do with um, if, in fact, what we're seeing now um, from uh, a number of conservative legal minds, uh, like Adrian Vermeule, advocating common a common good conservatism, are, are we really just saying uh, people saying the the quiet part out loud? And uh, didn't anybody see this coming? So, first of all, does anybody else have any thoughts on this? All right, then I will I will give a couple. So, first of all, uh, I I think that all movements that are about judicial restraint eventually face the problem that textualism, originalism is facing now, which is you you craft these theories by way of restraining judges. And then you are reasonably successful in restraining them from doing the things that you don't like. So in the case of liberal jurisprudence of the sort of Frankfurtian era, very successful at ending the excesses of the uh, um, of the New Deal court, right? But then it has to ask whether, you know, not having a political agenda that one opposes is adequately satisfying. And these movements always splinter over those questions. And you get the great debates between, you know, Frankfurter and, and the liberals of the Warren court over, over that question of whether they meant judicial, whether judicial restraint was merely restraint of the other side or whether it was, you know, a value in its own right. And I think you're seeing that debate in conservative jurisprudence now, you know, that there's a, there's a group of people who, for whom textualism and, and not just textualism, but the constant, the, the, the more, more broadly, the constant, the idea of the constitution as written is actually an earnest commitment. And they, some of them are, are, you know, you can say that they're deluded in, in how they understand that commitment, but they, they do understand it as a genuine commitment. And then there are people for whom it was never a particular commitment. It's just a device through which to critique the other side. And I don't want to, I don't know that Adrian was ever committed to it. I, it certainly wasn't something that he talked about. Um, yeah, I, I'm not talking about him specifically, but as a movement. Right. Yeah. So I think, look, yeah. if you're right now a conservative without particular principles and you look at the a 6-3 court on which you have the majority, uh, textualism and originalism is not an especially satisfying way to achieve your political objectives. It's it'll it'll prevent the other side. It's a very good vehicle for preventing the other side from achieving their political objectives. And there are certain things like gun rights 
that it gives you a lot of text to work with and stuff. But, you know, it doesn't help you much on the anti-regulatory side. It doesn't help. There's a lot of work it doesn't do for you. And, um, and so, you know, if you're, if your central commitment in life is a is that you're a pro-lifer uh you know it it gets you so far but no further right it it, it and if your central commitment in life is an is anti-regulatory it you you need some other device to 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 help you and so i i think that there are there is a debate going on in conservatism about this right now and by the way, that's exactly what you would have predicted there would be. I, I think one, once once they've achieved, like like if twenty years ago you had sat down the gurus of of originalism, you know Larry Silverman and and uh, Bob Bork and Nino Scalia and Frank Easterbrook, and you'd posed them the question. Okay, you have a six-three majority on the court. What happens next? I think it would have taken Larry Silberman thirty seconds to say there would be a five-four divide on the court over whether uh, whether to have a conservative activist jurisprudence. And I think all of them would agree with that. Would have agreed with that right away. And in fact, Bork, in his truly uh, bizarre book, *The Tempting of America*. Works actually spends time going through the conservative, critiquing the conservative approaches to activism, including Richard Epstein. Um, and so, like this wasn't, an, it was an anticipatable event, and in fact, it was an anticipated event. Um, um, I, I'm not sure how it could be otherwise, because once you have a six-three majority you have all kinds of conservative activists all over the country who were trying, hey, can we get them to do X? Can we get them to do Y? Can we put Z in front of them? And that's a, you know, that forces them to think in an ongoing way, hey, how much more can I get away with? Yeah. No, that, that, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. All, all of which, by the way, is simply a, a a a very good argument for uh having the presidency rotate between parties over time right so that you don't end mm -hmm. up with these with with these very very high concentrations of liberal or conservative justices that then produce these uh you know they actually do have a way over time of keeping each other honest. My, my old, my old um, friend Stephen Williams, now now deceased of COVID, um, who was a conservative judge on the D.C. Circuit, used to joke that the best panel of judges was of D.C. Circuit judges was two conservatives, so we'll get the right answer, and one liberal to keep us honest. And, mm -hmm. and I think there's like, like, I think mature appellate judges of all political and philosophical orientations really do understand the role of opposing philosophical ideas by way of 
just making sure you don't get away with stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I've always thought uh, Judge Williams's formulation of it was, I mean, it was partly ironic because he was he was a total straight shooter as a judge, <laughs> but there was something serious and and analytically, you know, he knew that when he aired, he, his knee would jerk in the same direction, and so having he valued having David Tatel around to say, wait a minute, what's your knee jerking on that? Um, and like, I, I just think we all just have to be mature about that. Can I yeah. like, just say like you get us like, I don't get that. Like, I'm not into as much modern SCOTUS because I'm just like, my common class doesn't take me that far yet. But you do see it like when you're like halfway or three fourths of the way into a common law class and you're like, why aren't things applying in the same way consistently? Like you start to get the like hint that maybe people don't always stick to the principles that they initially applied or the standards that they initially applied. And then you realize when it's advantageous, people will move out of the box that they've cornered themselves into. Yeah, and to be fair, the Supreme Court is allowed to do that, right? It it's you know it it is not constrained by its own precedents, and also when you take a con law class, you're looking at con law over a very long period of time, like two hundred thirty years of it, and so the question of whether Judge X presented with issue Y in one year will be true to his or her adjudication of issue why two years from now is not a question that, you know, a con law class will tend to treat um, because you're looking at 20 to 50 year jumps in time when personnel will have changed, when, you know, underlying social attitudes will have changed a lot. But you're right. Look, anybody who Anybody who kind of naively says that the court is not a political institution has not spent a lot of time with the court. Um, and that's not to say that it is a purely political institution or that there are not non-political factors that play in it, but it's, it's a, you know, uh, it, 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 it's a, it's a very complicated institution that ideology and, philosophical positioning does play an ongoing role in. Gabriella. Hello, Ben. You have, Hello. What, is the, what is the most uh, embarrassing false thing that you carried into adulthood believing is true? Oh, that I didn't know you were going to ask that question. I thought I, that you wanted an embarrassing incident. Okay, oh, that's where you, we'll, we'll be happy with an embarrassing incident. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so around my university years, I was diagnosed with ADHD and the doctor gave me uh, Ritalin. It's like a, okay, so it's, it's commonly given uh, for ADHD. I don't know if people know what it is. Anyway, I think the dose was a little high and um, I was taking the <laughs> philosophy of science seminar. It was really small and there was a lot that I had to learn. I really like didn't know. Um, enough to get up in front of the class. <laughs> Did you talk very fast? 
the teacher wasn't there. We had all gathered. He had the professor hadn't come in yet. And then, I, yes, I got up, and started writing on the chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> and it was almost like I was teaching the class, and the students were like very quiet and nobody said anything and um that's and the I, worst i just went on and like wrote anything. a couple of formulas and then the professor came in and kind of looked at me he said do you want to teach <laughs> and, I, and then i um realized that i was going overboard and sat down quietly and then i never took that drug again that's wow. the story very humiliating. And, and so here, here, here's my question about that story. Like, so there are, there are people in the world for that is for whom that is a five degree deviation from normal behavior. There are people yeah. in the world for whom that's kind of like a, a tangential, like, okay, you know, getting up and giving a lecture is something, you know, to, uh, that in a class they're not teaching is something that uh i don't know nobody would be too surprised <laughs> if i did um but um like how far you don't have command of the subject at all like... no so but just how far from your normal behavior i think it, it's like you are not the sort of person who normally gets up and starts writing on a blackboard for uh no. in a class they're not teaching <laughs> No, I mean, I think I do other things that people would think are more embarrassing than that, but uh, that was embarrassing for me. I mean, what people, yeah, people I'm sure have, like, for example, I recently had too much wine and posted a picture of myself in a costume and put it on Twitter. <laughs> that, that would be more embarrassing to other people, but to me, that was not very embarrassing because- Yeah, so Ev and I the other like, day just, had a- had a, a, a text discussion about something that I regarded as like my nightmare of the most embarrassing thing that could possibly happen to me, um, which was uh, that somebody had said something really stupid on Twitter about uh, Estonian foreign policy. And Tomas Ilvis had just responded to it. That's like, actually, this is wrong. Um, I, yeah. I, I was the foreign minister at the time. Um, and I, I just thought that was like, like, kill me now if that, if that ever happened to me. And Ev was like, eh, you know, I can imagine more embarrassing things. But I, I just like having, like pontificating about a country's foreign policy and then having the former, former foreign minister and president say, yeah, that's, that's bullshit. I was, uh, I was foreign minister at the time and you, you couldn't be more wrong. It just feels to me like the, the ultimate. Uh, it's so shocking, like how on Twitter, like because people mess with their usernames or they put like different like profile pictures, like you would think you'd be like tipped off maybe in a conversation like you. I've seen people do that plenty and plenty of times, especially with like like famous people and like you like you could just look up the name and within five minutes you'd be able to like understand that this is an expert and they'll literally type back to the person who are you and I'm like seriously I, I think I've done that I mean I, I I did see one case in which 
I mean, but this I think falls more into the category of of just idiot mansplaining um, of somebody uh, lecturing a uh, a prominent woman scholar whom I won't name about the work of a prominent woman scholar in her field. And she just responded very mildly. I know I am that person. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, like I, I wrote that book. Um, and I, you know, like, like it's that category of thing, except um, this was something that, you know, Tomas and I know each other pretty well. And, and um, I, I would really hate to be on the receiving end of that particular rapier. Um, all right, we need to go. Uh, thank you to my Cheese Night team, 100% of whom uh, responded to the bat signal. Scott missed his train. One text that went to Paula, Mateo, and Ev got a full complement of Cheese Night discussants. KK is going to be in the train, is still in the train. She may even be in the Greek chorus, for all I know. Um, you're all wonderful, fabulous Americans, except for Ev, who's a wonderful, fabulous French-Canadian. And um, we're going to be back some hours and some minutes from now. And until then, Matteo, we got to be unmuted to play this game. Oh, we're not allowed to, jeez. Uh, uh, oh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but uh, in lieu of fun. We are allowed to have trains. We can tell embarrassing stories in front of. Yeah, we uh, are allowed to do that. Friends. And I just want to say, when you have an embarrassing story in front of, the, the only way to handle it is to up the ante by telling it in public about yourself. Because... Like, uh, because uh, someone's going to tell that story about you. And if you don't tell it about yourself, uh, then you're going to crawl under a rock. Um, and so always be the first to tell the most embarrassing stories about yourself. Uh, it's a good secret life. Bye, guys. <laughs>